Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access? Scott, how are you? Welcome to episode nine. Hey, Mark. Doing great. Really looking forward to today's conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, it's nice. It's nice to be able to get a couple of these sessions in during the summer when uh, schedules get a little tighter. I'm thrilled about today's episode, and we get to take you back to uh, some of your uh, early career roots as a physician. Yeah, really looking forward to that part, as as you know. But, you know, there's one big difference from in this therapeutic area and this these sets of diseases from when I was practicing, and that's all the great new medicines that are available now compared to then. So it's going to be fun to talk about that and how we can help improve patients' access to those medicines. Well, great. Well, before we start, you know, we have to do our disclaimer so that the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors or any of its affiliates. So let's jump in. Scott, you want to introduce our guests? Sure. Happy to, Mark. Uh, We're pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Julie Bach. She's a practice manager at a very busy rheumatology practice in the Midwest and uh, deeply experienced in helping patients access their medicines. And so it should be a really terrific conversation. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Julie, we um, always start our podcast here with a, a few moments for our guests to get a chance to introduce themselves and what they do and how they came to this. And we're all always very interested to hear the backgrounds and how people got involved in drug pricing and access. And so we'd love to hear that from you. Sure. Good morning. So my name is Julie Bach. I'm the practice manager of the Arthritis Center in Bridgeton, Missouri, which is in St. Louis. I've been at this job for seven and a half years. I don't have experience in healthcare prior to this job, but I've had some big jobs before. I think one of the things that's um, made our practice unique is that I didn't have the healthcare mentality of typical non-customer service that can happen in healthcare situations. I just advocate one patient at a time. This office, this medical office is a customer service organization. That's our first thing. And so our, our focus is on the patient experience and the patient outcomes. Our clinical team handles the patient outcomes my administrative team handles the patient experience. We don't cross sores. We work in tandem and we let the clinicians do the clinician's work and we will let the administrators do the administrative work, but the focus is on the patient experience. So we've always put it out there that if a referring primary care doctor or any referring physician mid-level has an acute new rheumatology patient and that patient needs to be seen and that doc or doctor's representative calls my office, We'll see that new patient in one to three days. We are nimble and we are here to serve patients. As opposed to some of the hospital-based rheumatology practices don't have that ability to pivot like that. And so they might schedule patients six, seven, eight months out. So we're really here to help. That's what we've been doing for the last seven and a half years. And our growth has been pretty phenomenal. On top of that, it takes a whole lot of Support staff. I have 24 support staff to support one rheumatologist. 
And that's because of the payers and the pharmacy benefit managers and all of their administrative nonsense. So it, that's what it takes. Right, right. Well, that's why we're here. And that's why you're here. And that's why we became familiar with you and your practice and what you're able to achieve and the success you've had. And it's interesting because we started this episode with, you know, that we were going to just sort of make it a foundational episode about physician office barriers, you know, to access. And after having learned about what you've done and what you've achieved, we've changed the title of this episode to Fighting for Patients because you are truly a you truly are. And so, but before we get into some of the challenges related to access and some of the things that you've done related to access, we do want to sort of set the stage if we could, like, you know, again, we want this to be also educational. So because we do have listeners that are across the board with different stakeholders, including in Washington, D.C., so policyholders and others. So sort of set the stage with understanding the physician office in terms of like the type of practice you are, the service patients you preserve, the doctors that are prescribed, you know, just sort of set that stage if you could. Okay. So I have an independent single physician practice. We are in an underserved area of Bridgeton community. My patients are working folks. They struggle to have their copay to come see us. So some of them are coming on public transportation. Some of them are, you know, trying to get their medicine and maintain two jobs. So from that standpoint, I am literally serving the working class people and giving them concierge care for just the regular evaluation and management codes that we get from insurance companies. I see 25 new rheumatology patients in four days a week. Dr. Box sees Monday through Thursday, he sees somewhere between five and eight new patients a day. And each one of those patients are scheduled with him one-on-one -on -one time for 45 minutes. Like I can't even imagine the last time anyone has gotten 45 minutes of physician's time. And in our case, the rheumatology patients are chronic, and the majority of our patients have more than three chronic diagnoses. So these are really medically fragile patients. They're hurting, and we can get them better. We can get them better without surgical procedures and with medicine. Now, there's always an opportunity for surgical situations to be warranted, but not until the inflammatory issues have been addressed. You know, we're, we're saving patients from, you know, back surgeries, from unnecessary operations on plantar fasciitis and, and all sorts of things, because if you get these operations, you still have the underlying inflammatory conditions. So then patients are subject to multiple surgeries. So what we're trying to do is provide concierge level care for the working class folks. And I do that in a number of ways. First of all, I've got an amazing location. I've got a 4,400 square feet office on the ground floor in a hospital campus with private parking. I've got nine exam rooms. I have Dr. Bach, and he has four mid-levels. So he has one physician assistant and three nurse practitioners. I have an infusion room where we give our patients their medicine. I've got seven infusion chairs, and I have over 1,000, which is a huge number, infusion patients. That's a whole lot. This is a real small business here. So we're running about 28 to 30 infusions you know, every day, 28 infusions. I've got total about 65 patients coming into my office a day for office visits, for infusions, and for new patient consults. I have two ultrasound suites. So if we can get them out of the MRI suite and into the ultrasound suite and take care of what they need to take care of, it's kind of like a one-stop shop in the lowest cost possible. These patients don't have another 
$600 for an MRI. And if I can do it, take a peek at their knee and get an ultrasound guided injection, it's a fraction of the cost. And we treat symptoms. We don't treat MRIs. We don't treat off whatever the, the films say. We treat off making people be able to do the things they want to do, getting them back to work, being able to be with their grandchildren. We have multi-generations of patients. I mean, I've got 19-year-old patients that their mother and their grandmother and their grandfather are patients at our practice. 50% of my referrals come from patients. That kind of goes to the good um, will and the, and the clinical outcomes we have in our community. If I could just real, real quick, just I just want to finish up. What are the you mentioned three top diseases? What are the what are the three top diagnoses that you're dealing with? And what are the give us a, a couple of the top drugs that you're in in the infusion center? Just real quick. Sure. So our top diagnoses are rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, or reactive arthritis. And those are kind of the three tracks. And then you have got your lupuses and your you know the other ones. But those are the three primary and the three. And so all of the patients typically start on methotrexate if they're in those arthritis tracks, which is a very inexpensive drug. It can be oral or or, um, injection. We typically start them on a weekly dose based on weight. And so they'll start with methotrexate. And Dr. Bach runs the advise panel on the lab so we can get a a baseline of of what's going on with the patient. But a lot of times you can't just, not a lot of times, all the time, you can't can't just use one clinical piece because in an African-American population, the HLB27 is not going to come up, pop up in a rheumatology panel, right? So it doesn't mean that patient doesn't have rheumatoid arthritis. It's just one tool. So we look at when we're working up for a rheumatology or rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, Dr. Bach is going to give a differential diagnosis at around minute 22 of his first 45-minute patient encounter. And he starts with a working diagnosis, and we get a bilateral ultrasound diagnostic of the hands on patients because we can see the joint erosions and damage or lack thereof, but most of them have tender and swollen joints. So if we have that baseline at the first visit, then we can make sure that we're not doing any harm over as we continue to treat. Methotrexate, the the oral medicines and inexpensive medicines are obviously what we use first. Methotrexate, then you'll move on to like a sulfasalazine or flutamine based on their labs. There's certain labs that have to be run before they can start that. And then we typically see a new patient at back in somewhere between the six week and two month point. And then we'll go into if, if the methotrexate and the PO, the oral medicines are working well, we're going to just keep that going. And most of them then will go on a three-month follow-up. Then we'll move on to either a IV drug. Um, Symphony Aria is probably the, the best drug we have right now for an IV. It's the cheapest drug. It's, it's a quarter of the cost of Humira and Embril, which are self-injectable drugs. And it's a really great patient experience because it's only 30 minutes every eight weeks. So a working person can come in, get their medicine, and get on to work for the rest of the day. And it's, it's, it's a really good patient experience because then they don't have to deal with the pharmacy benefit managers and scheduling their medicine to be refrigerated and shipped into them every month. And the costs are in exorbitantly high for all of these medicines, but particularly the medicines coming and being shipped from 
Express Scripts, OptumRx, and CVS. I mean, and you, everybody knows what a nightmare it is to, to call them on the phone. Even as a physician's office, I don't have direct access to any of these people. So that's kind of our first line. The thing about rheumatology patients is they're very medically complex. And what works for one doesn't work for another. And what works for someone who's my size versus someone who's curvier it's a sub-Q drug, 50 milligram drug, isn't going to make a difference for someone who's, you know, curvier. That's why we really like to use these weight-based IV drugs like Symphony Aria. So it, everybody gets a customized dose, two MIGs over KIGs, based on your weight. So we have really good patient outcomes. A couple things that we never do is non-medical switches. Then that's really a huge problem right now with the, with the insurance companies. Which are your the major insurers in your area, Julie, for your practice? Anthem, United Healthcare. We actually um, are not working with Cigna anymore because of their administrative burden. So it's really Anthem and and uh, United Healthcare that are our primary, and then your Medicare, traditional Medicare, and then your Medicare Disadvantage programs. And I'm struck by the the customer service focus and how strongly that comes through. And also just the, you know, the size and efficiency of the practice that you've helped build and manage. And I'm wondering how that compares in your community to other practices. Has it got some others around that are doing things similar or or very different? So the independent rheumatologists in the area, there's, you know, three or four of them that are large like mine. There's several that are, you know, smaller, but there is no competition in rheumatology. There's always more rheumatology patients than rheumatologists. So we're very friendly with our colleagues, but as far as a staffing ratio, I'm probably the largest one. And, you know, part of that is because, you know, my husband is the medical director I'm the administrator, and he and I don't cross swords. He allows me to handle all the administration, and obviously I'm not tangling in clinical things. And I'm not afraid to put money where it needs to be put. I have a really gorgeous office. I, I like nice things. I want my patients to say, I want to be there. This feels good. I have great artwork, great chairs, and an amazing staff. Everybody on my staff wants to work there. I don't have any EORs. So I'm not tied to the hospital-based thing of it's going to take, you know, 16 signatures to get rid of someone. If someone doesn't want to work with me, goodbye. I need you guys to serve patients. But just to follow on on that before we get into some of the process stuff, the excess of demand, I'll say, for rheumatology services in this case, but specialty services generally compared to supply that you described in your community, but it's just prevalent, you know, lots and lots of places. Just some thoughts on that. The clinician burnout during, you know, and after the pandemic and and generally with, you know, the, the environment that's out there and how that may contribute. And it's something that I, I know I worry about and I know lots of people worry about these days. For sure. Well, I mean, the rheumatology training programs are, are what they are, you know, and coming out of this pandemic, when you've got residency and fellowships that literally have, were mostly virtual. Okay. We're feeling the effects of the lack of education and the lack of experience, right? So we didn't close down one day during the entire pandemic because our patients needed to get their medicine. My staff needed to work, you know, lots of places in particular, a hospital-based rheumatology place here, they're still doing virtual visits. Rheumatology is not virtual, folks. I mean, I need to have eyes and 
hands on the patient. I need labs. I need to see what's going on with them. Rashes pop up, you know, things happen and, you know, they've got all these chronic conditions. So, you know, there's a study out there that 50% of the rheumatologists are going to retire in five years. Wow. Okay. My husband is 63 years old. He's been doing this for 31 years. I'd like to be in that number, but I don't think we can leave these patients high and dry, right? And we've been trying to recruit a rheumatologist for the past four years. The training programs are putting out rheumatologists and physicians that are afraid to address pain controls and won't, won't prescribe opioids to patients. Look, I'm not looking to, to have an opioid practice, but we use tramadol in a lot of patients. But the new fellows don't even want to touch that because it's flipped so far the other way. And for my patients, they can't afford to go to pain management to refill a tramadol and then get subject to scheduled injections that aren't based on symptoms. So we try to do it all. So in answer to your question, it's, it's a mess. It is a mess for the future. I worry about my children's children's health care. Well, speaking of messes, let's let's turn to access and the challenges you've had. You've, you've, you've uh, hinted at a few already, and I think that it's important to get into it. And let, our, our particular focus, obviously, is around access to medicines. So you mentioned your great administrative team. Just just highlight just some of the steps that once uh, your once the Dr. Bach has prescribed the you know the right treatment for the right patient, what what steps do you do you take related to uh, insurance and getting approvals? Just just sort of highlight that real quick. Sure. So these patients are so unique. Whatever my clinical team, Dr. Bach and the mid levels prescribe, that's my job and my administrative teams to get that patient on that drug. I don't. I don't have any ability to do anything but what they want. Okay. But then you have an insurance company and, and a PBM like Cigna and Express Scripts and Accredo that are saying, but wait, 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 we don't want this patient to be on infusion medicine of Simsia because it's too expensive or really because they're not getting a big enough rebate and kickback. But here's the thing. If you're a childbearing age and you're trying to have conceive a child, you can't be on any other rheumatology medicine except Simsia. That's the only one that shows efficacy. So there are real solid reasons that my clinical team is writing medicines for a patient. And I don't care if it's an infusion drug, sub-Q drug, or an oral drug. Whatever they write, I'm going to the mat with, okay, because there's real reasons to do it. You know, I, I frequently have probably play in the most space in this pay-to-play formulary list. So all of the insurance ha companies have their little list of, you know, that they will tell people is clinically the best medicine, but it's not. It is 100% based on what their, what their manufacturers have paid them to play on their list. So, you know, back in 2020, Express Scripts had a, had a dust-up, if you will, with Novartis, who was the maker of Cosentex, which is a subcutaneous self-injectable drug. And Novartis apparently had a breakdown with them and said, we're not paying to play anymore. And so Express Scripts said, well, guess what? You, nobody that's an Express Scripts patient, which is all of the Cigna ones for the most part, I mean, there's a couple that they go to other PBMs, they have to come off on a non-medical switch off Cosentex sub-Q. Well, that's a disaster for a rheumatology patient. I mean, rheumatology patients, if they're stable, we don't change them. That's it. They have to stay on drug. And so Express Scripts, the PBM, sent out a 54-question prior authorization 
that had to be filled out for every patient on Cosentex if they wanted to stay on it. Now, what physician's office is going to do that for every single patient on one single drug? They don't have the time, the staff, the bench strength to do it. Guess what? I do. I'm the one who filled out all those things. And every one of our patients that was on Cosentex stayed on Cosentex. And interestingly enough, now here we are three years later, Express Scripts came back to Novartis and said, whoops, we need to have you guys on our formulary and we know you won't pay. And they're not in a first position, but they're back on the formulary. So I, my hope is that pharma can stand with the physicians doing the work instead of the crooks at the pharmacy benefit managers. Julie, could you elaborate a little bit more on the patients? What happens to the patients when they have to switch medicine like that? You said that you take somebody that's been stable and then you do a non-medical switch. What happens to the patients? So Dr. Bach did two non-medical switches that the patients wanted to do in 2020 and 2021. And ever since those, we've never done another one. So what happened was stable infusion patients are on Remicade, okay? And then these two patients were United Healthcare, both of them. And United Healthcare demanded a non-medical switch to a biosimilar. So there's Inflectra and Abzola, right? So back in 2020, Abzola and Inflectra were not underwater. So now both are and both have been. Inflectra, underwater means the acquisition cost is higher than they reimburse us, right? So, but the first thing we do is I, I talk to the patient and say, look, your insurance company wants you to do this. Dr. Bach doesn't want you to do this. What do you want to do? Because if a patient isn't going to stand shoulder to shoulder with me and advocate for themselves with their insurance company, and then I'm not going to tangle in them, okay? But we're also not going to write non-medical switches, so this probably isn't the practice for them because we have to do no harm as the base, and a non-medical switch is harm. So my two United Healthcare patients said, no, 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 I don't mind. I will do a non-medical switch to Abzola and Inflectra, each one. Both of those patients had been stable for years on branded Remicade. Both of those patients had dramatic infusion reactions. One of them ended up being transported 911 to the hospital from my office. Okay. Just because it's a biosimilar, it's not interchangeable. In fact, it's absolutely not interchangeable. And all of these patients react differently. I actually filed not one, but two MedWatch reports with the FDA over those non-medical switches. And that became my prior authorization for the next to go back to therapy. But guess what happened on both those patients? United Healthcare said, okay, fine, go back to branded Remicade. We started branded Remicade, didn't work. Happens all the time. So now the employer paying the bill on this mess of this non-medical switch paid for the, the Abzola. They had a stable patient, an employee. On, in, on brand of Remicade. They paid for the Abzola and the Inflectra, which then we had to you know, throw out because we already mixed it and, and trashed that. They paid for the emergency room trip. They paid for us to have to rework up both of those patients. Then we go back to branded Remicade. That didn't work. So now we trash that. And now we have to work them up another time. So now both of those patients are on, they're on like the, the next five drugs. So they'll never be stable back on those old medicines. So after that experience, I don't give the patients an opportunity to say they're willing to do what their insurance company wants if they're, if it's not, if they're stable. If they want to do you know, what their insurance company wants and they haven't started the drug, I'm happy to, to work through that with Dr. Bach, clinical team, and the patient. But there will be no more non-medical switches, and there have not been 
since those two experiences. Julie, you mentioned the 54-page prior authorization, yet some payers have announced initiatives to reduce the, the administrative burden on physicians' offices. You know, you're on the front lines. So have you seen any improvement on more, you know, some simple processes to complete PAs? And tell us what it's like on the prior authorization front. Sure. That's complete nonsense, by the way. That's window dressing. And it doesn't, <laughs> it's not applicable in rheumatology. Everybody's, you know, as a rheumatologist's office, there's a huge target on our back because of the price of the drugs that we infuse and that we write prescriptions for. You're hearing out in the media, oh, you know, it's this small subset, you know, 5% of the patients are causing, you know, 90% of the drug spend. That's a rheumatology patient, okay? It's, it's not necessarily a bad spend. It's just how corrupt the industry is. So all these middlemen are between the patient and the physician, and they need their piece of all of this thing. So with regards to your question, do we have less prior authorization since the insurance company's initiative? Absolutely not. Let's take Cigna, for example. There are 54 questions for Cosentex back in 2020. They came out with another policy called a 25 modifier policy. They've rolled this old dog out now three times and retracted it two days before they went into it went into effect. That not only is it's, it's another level of prior authorization on steroids, okay? A 25 modifier is literally designed to not pay the doctors doing the work. So if a patient needed two procedures in one day, an infusion and an injection, or an office visit and an infusion, you can't get that without a ton of paperwork. And, the, and the, it's essentially designed to deny the claim. And that's 100% Cigna. That's actually why we terminated our contract with Cigna over that policy. And I would love to sit down with people at Cigna and try to work through this and have them come to my office, even have a conversation with me about the patient experience. Because if you guys came to my office or Cigna showed up in my office, they'd be like blown away. They want this experience for their patients but they don't want to pay and they put roadblocks and broken glass in front of me doing the work. So are prior authorizations um, lightening up for rheumatology? No way. It's worse than ever. Don't, don't hold back, Julie. Don't uh, hold okay. back. Okay. All right. I know that I, you know, I'm a little bit of a, you know, I don't know if you know where I'm standing on this issue, <laughs> yeah, but right. it is a dumpster fire, boys. Okay. Is, are there any insurers or PBMs that are doing a better job than some of the others? And what, you know, if so, what, what are they doing? So, you know, no, <laughs> they're not. So it's industry-wide. It's industry-wide. I have to prior authorize tramadol, okay? I counsel patients, buy this cash pay at a local pharmacy and forget it. I, I saw a 22-page fax yesterday to prior authorize tramadol. This is a drug that's like 10 bucks a month. But these patients, they don't understand it. The insurance companies, they want to control everything, you know? And so we have to prior authorize Zofran. We have to prior authorize everything. So we're really in a bad spot here with insurance companies and the pharmacy benefit managers. There's not one single good thing that comes from them. They literally are middleman mafia. Julie, if we could, though, now let's take it take it sort of out of the office. You've got a patient who's you've 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 got a prior auth, and now they're they're uh, on treatment. What are some of the patient barriers that you're seeing that that could be high copays, could be other things? Like, what are you seeing there as a 
challenge? So, you know, on the sub-Q side and the oral medicines, all of those need to come from a specialty pharmacy. Okay, there's nothing special about a specialty pharmacy. They're just, you know, making it more difficult for us to get access to these drugs. But the biggest barrier to that is between the patient and the pharmacy benefit manager. So, you know, they're mandated to get their drugs through OptumRx or Express Scripts or Accredo. You can't get these people on the phone. The patients have grave difficulty. These are working people. They don't have a job like you and I do that we can make a phone call while we're working and and creating emails, okay? I can stay on hold for an hour with a pharmacy benefit manager trying to help a patient get access, but the patient doesn't have that time. And then there's all of these other nonsense of these pharmacy benefit managers have set up these lever programs that they have to contact the patient once a month and physically have a conversation with them before they'll ship their Humira, Embryol, Cosentex, whatever it is. And then they ship it and it's late or it's arrives and it doesn't have any ice in it. It's, it's a hundred degrees here this, this week in St. Louis, Missouri, or the package gets delivered to someone's neighbor's house and their dog chews it up. Like there's all of these things that happen. And then we've got additional burdens of copay accumulators and, and then these interlopers that, you know, have come in to sell solutions to self-funded employers like Vivio and Archimedes and, and that are having, doing like non-medical switches and they have no idea what they're doing. So the barriers to the patient first and foremost are dealing with pharmacy benefit managers and the lack of access you cannot get someone on the phone. The shipping is a huge problem of the medicines. Then what happens is the patient fails. Let's say they fail Embril. The pharmacy benefit manager has a prescription for Embril times three. If they get that little thing going on, they will continue to ship the medicine, but they won't ship it. You know, Once the patient has started to take it, if they come off of it, They keep shipping the medicine and and I call it fill it and bill it. They'll ship it to my office. I mean, I don't want any of this stuff here. They just keep shipping it despite the fact that the patient's off of it. So it's very inconsistent. A lot of these customer service call centers are in India. English isn't their first language and the hours are really difficult for the patient. So that's that's probably the biggest barrier on the sub-Q and the oral medicine side. Julie, you mentioned copay accumulators and maximizers, and we had an episode earlier uh, where we talked to a couple of experts on that. We've also been hearing about individual drugs being declared non-essential and therefore not covered, and attempts to route those patients then to the manufacturer's free goods program, their patient assistance. and Sometimes they call it alternative funding programs. I'm wondering if you've seen any of that. Absolutely. The alternative funding is a scam. Okay. It is, there's, there's uh, different employer groups that have been sold a bill of goods. I have one patient who's a riverboat captain and in 2020, his employer had gotten bamboozled into a deal with Vivio, Vivio, V-I-V-I-O. They are an alternative funder and they are trying to say that they're going to they're going to take over the rheumatology medicines but they're all non-medical switches. So, 
I went, I took it to the mat on, on every single one patient at a time, but I got the employer. I worked directly with the employers when I can't get anywhere with, with the pay, with the insurance companies. And certainly you can't get anywhere with the PBMs. I go straight to the employer. They're the ones paying the bill. They have the best interest of their employees at heart. I have the best interest of their employees. So why am I dealing with these people that don't want to talk to me like Cigna and Express Scripts? So I go straight to the employer. I went to the employer and said, emailed, you know, a big, huge packet. This is what Vivio wants us to do. I'm not doing it. Give me a single agreement to cut them out. And that's what I do. And I got that. And that patient is still stable on Arencia infusion therapy. He's a little out of the box because he's out of town for 32 days at a time. And then he's back for three days. So I have to do his infusions a little bit off schedule, but I have a deal with the employer because that's the right medicine and the right time schedule for these patients. None of these patients are one size fits all. And I have a direct contract with Edward Jones and, and with to not have to use the pharmacy benefit manager. They don't even know that they're paying three to eight times as much for a pharmacy benefit manager infusion drug as they can get it in my low-cost center. They've been so bamboozled by this. So I don't have to work with a pharmacy benefit manager for drug for Edward Jones. I don't have to work for it for Boeing employees. And those are all born out of advocacy and working one patient at a time. And we use Twitter, we use faxes, we use social media, we use reporting. I mean, the first time I did this, Dr. Bach took one of the patients on the news and that was in 20, 2020 and United Healthcare gave me a five-year override to let that patient have her medicine in my office. So public shaming works. I mean, it, it literally is the new prior authorization. Again, I just admire what you're doing and, and we're thrilled that you're here today to talk to us because I love you know, your ideas and your courage to take on some of these fights. And so thank you for what you're doing. There are manufacturer support programs, right? You know, I come out of that industry and, and Scott comes out of the pharmaceutical industry. So help us understand your perspective on the manufacturer sponsored support programs, whether it's hubs or copay programs or patient assistance. What's been your experience with, with those programs? And again, don't, don't feel like you got to say nice things. You can, you, we know you're, you're going to, don't hold back. Listen, the pharma copay assistance programs are vital, okay, for the patients to have access to the drug. These are expensive drugs. And so if they can get the $5 copay card, but that's only good for commercial insurance. It doesn't work for the Medicare disadvantaged programs or the Medicare in a traditional supplement. But those patients can probably get their medicines if they have traditional Medicare and a supplemental plan. In, in the Medicare Advantage, which I call Medicare Disadvantage, the patient becomes the secondary insurance. They don't understand that. So if you're a rheumatology patient in my office, you probably don't have $3,000, okay? Most people don't. But if you have a Medicare Disadvantage program, you need to pay the first $2,700 to $3,200, depending on what Medicare Disadvantage plan you have. And the patient's can't access the copay assistance programs because they have a government-funded program or government plan. As far as the patient assistance programs go, I've worked really closely with the folks at J&J and particularly with Symphony Aria, and they're actually in litigation with a couple of these, these interlopers, like I like to call it. Save on SP and Payer Matrix, I've dealt with both of them, and I have single agreements with the employers to work outside of them. I one time had the Payer Matrix CEO call me up and say, who in the hell are you? And I said, who in the hell are you? 
I'm just trying to take care of my patient here. But whatever it is, I'm drilling down and every one of these cases are unique and I'm working around them. So there's a, a company, the Plumbers and Pipe Fitters. They got sold, you know, and they're complacent in all this too. They've got some a TPA, a third-party administrator that conned them into writing all of the biologics carving all of the biologics out for their for their members, okay? These are hardworking folks. They don't even understand what that means. What that means is if they carve out the biologics, then I get a denial authorization rejected from the insurance company that they're partnered with, which let's just use Cigna, that says, oh, well, this patient doesn't have coverage for biologics, so they need to get free drug. There's a time and a place for free drug. And there's a time and a place for every drug in my office, but free drug is not infused in my office because the place for that is at the 340B hospital up the street. But the 340B hospital won't even take these people that are involved with payer matrix and save on SP because they're draining the J&J patient assistance funds. If they can get a denial, okay, that says you're not covered, then all of a sudden the manufacturers were, were saying, okay, give them free drug. The manufacturers are super generous. The problem is the pharmacy benefit managers and the interlopers. And then you have payer matrix or save on SP turning around and charging the employer saying, okay, well, we got this free drug. So you owe us 25% of the list price of that drug. They're selling free drug. So Pharma has now gotten wise to all this and changed the patient assistant programs and say, if you have insurance, you can't get free drug, which is very appropriate because we can't have, this is a whole nother industry and it's like whack-a-mole. All the time, we've got all of these interlopers coming, coming up, SmithRx, ScoutRx, Archimedes, Vivio. They're literally just pivoting into pulling money off and making it, doing none of the work. So the patient assistance programs are vital to get commercial patients the the medicines they need, but they're also they've also been very abused by the interlopers and pharmacy benefit managers. Do you see Julie any new kinds of programs emerging or new technologies? We've talked to a number of people that are optimistic about uh, the role of information technology for the future in terms of making some of this navigation easier. Have you seen anything that's caught your eye? No, listen, this is not a, an algorithm disease, okay? This is so far from one size fits all. It's not even one size fits most. So, you know, Cigna has got another lawsuit from the state of California because they're processing algorithm denials and it's all over the place. 1.2 seconds for an algorithm denial from Cigna. Are you kidding me? Like they don't even have a, a live person, not even a pharmacy tech, not a nurse, not a mid-level, certainly not a physician and certainly not a rheumatologist denying these patients. Like literally, it's just all of the AI in rheumatology, I haven't seen anything that's worth it because it's all based on algorithm denials. And, and it's not, these are very complex patients. It doesn't work. So I haven't seen anything. Julie, you, you've been, again, you, you're on our radar because of, you've been involved in the local and national level and trying to make a difference. For policymakers at the state and the national level listening, what do you recommend they could potentially do to help improve the situation? So I've actually testified on the Missouri Senate and Banking Insurance floor before in my home state here in Missouri. And I actually picked up a patient 
who lived two and a half hours from me and drove her there because she doesn't have a car and she had to get rides. And she and I testified together. And it was such a horrible experience because we were the only two for the patients, okay, at this particular hearing. And there was like nine, there was nine lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry from, you know, Express Scripts, Acredo, OptumRx, PCMA. And they literally are telling these legislators and decision makers the exact opposite of how things are. And it's so disheartening. What I, my message to the legislators and the, and, and the people making the decisions is let the physician decide what the patient needs. Pharmacy benefit managers, and you know, they're just all in the news right now because it's finally caught on that they've put our independent pharmacies out of business. And they're probably looking to put me out of business. If I was them, I'd be looking to put me out of business too. But they don't have the patient's best interest at heart. The lobbyists don't. So my message would be, can you just let the physician decide what the patient needs and trust that? We, we took a Hippocratic oath not the pharmacy benefit managers. I mean, they literally are wolves in sheep's clothing. And if anything goes wrong, you're the one, the doctor's the one to get sued, right? Of course. We have all the all the liability and none of the decision powers. I can't tell you the last time I've done a peer-to-peer with a rheumatologist to a rheumatologist. It never happens. It's always, a peer-to-peer is is not even a discussion of clinical of a clinical situation with a patient. A peer-to-peer is now being done by a pharmacist. Um, no disrespect, because I love myself some pharmacists, but a pharmacist having a conversation with a rheumatologist with 30 years of experience is not a match. And there's a pharmacist over there that has been horrid. And she has like, she, I have her on all of my recorded calls. She's like, look, I know, I know more about these medicines than Dr. Bach does. I'm like, yeah, don't. You don't have 30 years of experience and all of this training, but they are so adamant and they are making up the rules. The people that the insurance companies and the pharmacy benefit managers are making up the rules. So one size doesn't fit all. And that's what they're all about. Wow. Well, Julie, it's great to see your passion. We always close by inviting our guests to share with us their ideas. If they had a magic wand, what would be your prescription for better access? So we, you know, we covered a lot of ground here about things that, you know, could be improved. What would you focus on? So I think the very best thing for my prescription for access would be to have the self-funded employers direct contract with the physicians doing the work. Uh, I'm actually going to Wisconsin next week and Wendell Potter is going to speak there. Wendell Potter is a whistleblower from Cigna from years ago. I kind of have a corporate crush on him. I'm really looking forward (laughs) to meeting him. But there's good and honorable insurance brokers and there's ones that are not. Okay. And so these self-funded employers are getting bamboozled into these plans that they have no idea what, what they mean. They're being told, look, if you don't mandate to express scripts in a credo, your expenses are going to skyrocket. Okay. So that's actually not true. Okay. I'm a low cost center. It's super efficient to infuse in my clinic or to be served in my clinic. So I I think the direct contracting is the next step because the physicians doing the work 
need to not be bogged down with more nonsense to do, with more prior authorizations. We're doing FMLA, disability paperwork. You know, it's just the paperwork is that's why I have to have 24 people to support one physician. Practices don't have the ability to hire that many people and house them and do this work. So I would say my my wish and my magic wand would say direct contract with the with the employers and cut these middleman insurance companies out and cut these middleman pharmacy benefit managers out. I love it. Love it. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. We are we were we are thrilled to have you on. You are a real inspiration because you are a fighter and you're fighting for patients and you're fighting, you know, fighting the fight to help us improve access. So Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your to tell your team that thank them for what they're doing. We know how difficult that could be. We really appreciate you joining us today. I am delighted to be a part of the conversation and I'd be happy to do anything again. And please follow me, my office on Twitter for STL arthritis, because that's where we're calling out these insurance companies and it works because if it didn't, I wouldn't do it. Well, I've already, I've already started following you on Twitter, so you can count on that. Scott, you want me to go or you want to go first today? Why don't you go ahead, Mark? Yeah, what were some of the key takeaways from your perspective? Well, I want to go back to the beginning. Every patient is one. It's a patient of one. Like, you know, there's no cookie cutter approach to patients. There's no cookie cutter approach to treatments. Every disease has maybe similar, but when it's into one person, how that person reacts is totally different. Two is the obscene push and pull between who is the clinical decision maker. There shouldn't even be any doubt about that. It's the doctor, right? Like, we don't want to go back to the days of the HMOs. We remember those days, don't we, Scott? You bet. And Julie's right. You know, the the decision makers at some of these payers, you know, they can't go toe-to-toe with the experts, and they shouldn't. We really have to let the power come back to the physician's office truly believe in that. The burden on the patients, we've heard it from all of our other episodes. It was very much, you know, a theme we've heard through the first eight episodes in terms of the impact on patients and the burden on patients. I really liked how she brought out something new today, which was the communication and the shipping issues with specialty pharmacy. So Scott, I'll let you sort of pick up and finish off. Yeah. Well, Mark, I that's all great. And uh, Julie, so wonderful having you here. I'm just first struck by, you know, what an amazing practice this is and and uh, how much passion you and I know all your colleagues have for taking care of those patients and sort of how lucky to, you know, really, if, if you need a practice like that, to be able to have, have one and be a part of that. I'm struck again by the overwhelming complexity of this, you know, crazy system that we've built and especially the description of sort of the whack-a-mole of, you know, tactics that keep emerging back and forth. You try to get one thing solved and, you know, another one is thrust in front of you. It's not an algorithm problem. I thought that's a very interesting insight. It, it makes it feel like it's complex by design, you know, frankly, that it's it's it purposeful. And solving for that with, you know, technology or algorithm or whatever is, is going to be a challenge. I'm struck by the story about the non-clinical switches, the experience of that, and how hard that was, not only for the practice, but and and for the employer group that's paying for it, but frankly for the patient. That would that would be 
months of setback in their clinical care that frankly, you know, was unnecessary. You know, it was, uh, so that's just a striking description, frankly, of that. And then lastly, you know, I'm also, this is back to a little bit to where I started, but it's, it's clear to me, you know, the, the passion on the one side is matched a bit on the other side, has to be in this environment by a degree of frustration with, you know, all the friction and everything that's going on, the craziness of it. And we mentioned about the limited supply of practitioners and uh, the burnout. And I just worry about this continued conflagration of limited supply, demanding environment, burnout, friction, and all those kinds of things. And I think it's something that you know, for the next generation, we're going to have to figure out better ways to deal with that than, than what we can't. Let's just, just pile it on layer and layer and layer of this kind of stuff isn't the way. That's just making it worse. So anyway, am- amazing discussion. So fun to chat with you, Julie, and hear about life from your perspective and really appreciate your time. The last thing is, is her prescription for better access is a new idea that every physician's office should should adopt. You know, I, I love it. I think that that's a, the idea to go directly to the employer to get the carve outs is a great idea. Every physician's office should be, should be thinking about that. And let's just stop, you know, messing around with the burdens and go straight to the people who are picking up the cost. So love that idea. So Julie, again, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I want to say thank you to my partner, Scott, for our episode nine. This is going to be it for the summer. So we will be back after Labor Day. And with that, thank you, Julie. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for carrying the message, guys. It's super, super important. Join co-host Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.